Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities in the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. For national leaders, propping up car industries is good politics. At the city level, though, politicians want measures that make for fewer vehicles on the road. More cars are being bought, even as driving them gets trickier, and it's all getting a bit political. And in the pandemic era, the office has serious competition in the form of remote working. So how to make the office worth the commute? Our columnist paints a picture of more flexible working spaces, more data gathering on employees, and a fair bit more booze. But first... Today marks 80 years since America's place in the world began a transformation. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. America and Japan had been battling for influence in the Pacific. Then, just before 8 a.m. Hawaii time, hundreds of Japanese aircraft attacked the naval base at Pearl Harbor. America's role in World War II was suddenly crystallized by the Japanese. In response, America's President Franklin Roosevelt asked Congress to declare war with Japan. No matter how long it may take us, To overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. America went on to establish itself as the global military hegemon, helping to build a post-war world order and keep it stable. But that old order is starting to break down. I was in Honolulu a couple of weeks ago at Pearl Harbor, Anton LaGuardia is The Economist's diplomatic editor. We were visiting to understand what happened on December the 7th, 1941. We came across this tremendous brass band playing at the foot of the gangway leading up to the USS Missouri, which is the battleship where the United States accepted Imperial Japan's formal surrender in 1945. This is a great vista to see what happened on December 7th and kind of how the Japanese attack went down. um, We were touring Pearl Harbor with Jim Newman, who is the naval historian of uh, the base. When you just come out here and you think about what happened on December 7th and all that that represented and just how the world really changed. Jim understands more than most how important the attack on Pearl Harbor was 
in terms of defining America's position in the world. To that point, the United States had tried to stay out of war. We went through World War I. We didn't want to go through that again. We were really trying to continue to be an isolationist nation. Well, after the attack on Pearl Harbor in World War II, um, we, we realized we couldn't do that again. The United States is, has to be involved in the world because the entire world was devastated from World War II. We were really... After the Second World War, America became the world's greatest superpower, defeating the Soviet Union in the Cold War, building an international liberal order. 80 years on from Pearl Harbor, America has grown somewhat weary of upholding that order. And there's a sense of America turning in on itself, if not yet actually retrenching. And how, in your view, did America lose that resolve to stay involved, to have a footprint all over the world? You could trace back this sense of why is it always us that has to police the world to, I think, the Obama years or even before. So after the 9-11 attacks on America, George Bush decides that he's going to engage in a global war on terrorism and will democratize the Middle East by force if necessary. Obama begins to turn against that. He says Iraq was a wrong war to fight. He tries to get out of Iraq. Because after a decade of war, the nation that we need to build and the nation that we will build is our own. But leaves a vacuum, which forces him to go back in. He drew a red line over the use of chemical weapons in Syria but did not resort to military force when Bashar al-Assad responded to it. Donald Trump was a president who was all over the place. He embraced dictators. He berated old allies, democracies. He didn't believe in international trade. He did raise tariffs, engage in trade wars, not only with China, but also with the Europeans. And Joe Biden has kept some of that economic mindset. He has maintained the tariffs on China. He does not like the idea of free trade agreements. He's suspicious of them. And he has withdrawn from Afghanistan against the advice of many of America's allies and indeed of many of America's top military brass. So in aggregate, then, this this is a country that is, is showing that it's no longer interested in being the world's policeman. There are crises that are brewing up that I think will test Joe Biden's mettle. You've got the Russian buildup on the borders of Ukraine. You've got the faltering diplomacy over Iran's nuclear weapons. And then you've got the big one, which is China's rapid armament and signaling that it intends one day to reintegrate Taiwan into China. And you're hearing a large number of American military officials saying America's edge in the Pacific is eroding very fast. I think one thing that we're already seeing is that the administration would dearly like to focus on the Pacific or the Indo-Pacific, as they now call it. But these other problems in the world keep pulling it back. It sounds as if the most dangerous, the most urgent, perhaps, of, of the issues facing America geopolitically is this question about China and Taiwan. Any time from about a year from now... The sense among officials and military planners is that it is possible that there will be a crisis in Taiwan. Now, America's policy over Taiwan is shrouded in what's called strategic ambiguity, 
which is that America will not say for certain what it will do. And that is meant to both deter China from invading, but also deter Taiwan from trying to break away formally. But when you listen to President Biden, he says things that are not quite that ambiguous anymore. So are you saying that that the United States would come to Taiwan's defense if China attacked? Yes, we have a commitment to do that. He has to be rowed back by the diplomats and the officials. There has been no shift. The president was not announcing any change in our policy, nor has he made a decision to change our policy. Many people think a crisis will not be a kind of Pearl Harbor-style attack out of the blue, but it will be some kind of gray zone event, something short of all-out war, a cyber attack, a blockade, the takeover of an outlying island, something that forces America to decide whether it's really willing to escalate into something that may become an all-out war with China. But what if it does come to an actual military conflict? How, How do experts think that would go? Taking on China is a big task, and people are saying, at the very least, we should debate whether it's worth doing this, whether America can still afford to maintain global supremacy. There is a school of thought that continuing to try and maintain America's dominance of the world is counterproductive, creates enemies, and will ultimately lead to the conflict that it's seeking to stop. I think that... Joe Biden is still a globalist. I think he believes that America can maintain its position. It was interesting being at Pearl Harbor as you look at the great parking lot of gray hull ships. There were two British warships in harbor. They're now on permanent deployment in the Pacific. And there was also a Japanese sub. And in a sense, America has something special about its power, which is its ability to draw both old friends and old enemies together. So if America is able to maintain its global dominance, it will be in part thanks to that ability to maintain allies. Anton, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. A pleasure to talk to you. America's relationship with China just keeps getting more prickly. Yesterday, the Biden administration confirmed that America wouldn't send diplomats to the Winter Olympics in Beijing. U.S. diplomatic or official representation would treat these games as business as usual in the face of the PRC's egregious human rights abuses and atrocities in Xinjiang. And we simply can't do that. This Friday on Checks and Balance, our sister show on American politics, our editors ask whether and how America's war of words with China could become the shooting kind. Find it wherever fine podcasts are sold and traded. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. It's always us talking to you. How about you talk to us a little bit? We'd like to get your views on the intelligence. 
What do you like? What could we be doing better? Head over to economist.com slash intelligence survey, or just click the link that's in the notes for today's show. Thanks. So in November, I went to a monster truck rally. Daniel Knowles is our Midwest correspondent and is based in Chicago. This one was in Madison in Wisconsin, and it was in a kind of stadium, which I'm sure is used for many things, but they built these jumps. They had a bunch of like old cars that were sort of piled up underneath them. And then they had these six enormous monster trucks which essentially kind of did donuts and jump over the jumps and crush the cars underneath. There was a sort of very enthusiastic announcer. We're going to break it down to three. One more time. How many do we have for Caitlin It was all sort of very American, very much a celebration of enormous vehicles crunching things for fun. So I went to this rally because it's kind of an indicator of almost the purest form of American car culture. You know, it's a real celebration of bigger, more powerful, louder vehicles. But the reality is that car culture in America is not what it was. There's a kind of growing challenge emerging to it. In fact, if anything, car ownership and car use is something that's becoming increasingly political. Oh, no, don't don't tell me that Truckosaurus is also a partisan issue. It's not really a clash between left or right and Democrats or Republicans. Joe Biden describes himself as a car guy. He's very big on being pictured with fast cars and Humvees and things. It's more coming from city leaderships. And what you've had in in the US, particularly just in, in last November, is the election of an awful lot of city leaders who want to try and pare back the use of cars in cities. They want fewer people driving. They want to nudge people to walk, to use public transport, to cycle. They're beginning to do things like getting rid of car lanes to put in cycle lanes, increasing the cost of parking. So you have this kind of dual level of policy where the federal government, you know, really wants to, if anything, make driving easier. They're making sure that the price of petrol doesn't go up, that sort of thing, providing new tax credits for electric vehicles. But city leaders are like, oh, no, we've got too many vehicles on our streets already. We have too much congestion and too much pollution. And and can we get people out of their cars? Right, okay, but a lot of what you're describing is, sounds like what's been tried elsewhere, in, in Europe in particular. Bike lanes, congestion charges, parking getting ever more expensive. Yeah, so I, I think America is beginning to catch up to something that's been going in various parts of Europe kind of since the 1970s and certainly since like the 1990s, early 2000s, you know, I mean, London has had a congestion charge since 2005. Uh, Paris now is a city that's been beginning to really close big roads to cars, um, opening lots more cycle lanes. So Europe has been trying in bigger cities to reduce car use for quite a while. And it's something that that is also accelerating in Europe, though, particularly with the pandemic, which led governments to really try and uh, stop people going back into their cars when public transport was closed. So we've got some experimental data then. Do these policies work? Do they actually get people out of their cars, get cars off the road? 
Well, they do where they're implemented. Paris has had a big drop in the number of people driving. It's fallen from 60% of households who own a car to 35%. London is the only part of the UK where the distance being driven by car has fallen. Everywhere else, people are driving more. In London, they're driving less. So it does basically work uh, in cities. The trouble is the politics of it, because an awful lot of the people who are driving into cities live at the outskirts of cities. And, and that's the case in America. That's certainly the case in Europe. And those types of people who do want to drive into cities, we want to be able to use their cars, are often exactly the sorts of people who national politicians are most concerned about. They tend to be older voters, people who kind of matter in national elections. So you have this growing tension between what national governments are doing, which is saying we need to make driving cheaper, we need to make it more possible for people to buy new cars to keep the car industry going, and then city leaders, which are like, please don't drive them into our cities. And I, you get a lot of protest that follows the implementation of these new rules in cities. You know, you have Le Gilet Jaune in France, but uh, in London, we've had vandalism, enormous protests against roads being blocked, that sort of thing. So, yeah, so suddenly it becomes very controversial. And given that controversy, then, what do you think will happen? Which faction is going to win out here? So I think there are going to be ever more arguments and the fighting over cars is just going to keep growing because the cost of driving, you know, if you look over the past kind of 10, 20, 30 years has been falling. Governments everywhere are very reluctant to raise the cost of tax on, on fuel. Cars are getting more efficient, so they're cheaper to drive. And the next thing that's coming along is electric cars. And, you know, electric cars obviously contribute less to pollution, to CO2 emissions, but they're also a lot cheaper to drive. So you can see a big rise in the number of cars on the road as people begin to switch to electric cars and think, well, I can drive everywhere for free, near enough. I think, you know, you'll have more cars on the road, more congestion, and more governments, more at a local level, going, well, this is enough, and beginning to close roads and beginning to kind of impose all these restrictions, which I think will prove really unpopular. So I think it's just going to be a bigger and bigger fight as time goes on. Well, how to take the fight out of it, though? What's a possible resolution? In the kind of long run, there's an interesting sort of generational change going on, which is that younger people tend to be driving less. The amount of car ownership among younger people has fallen. You know, the median new car buyer in the United States is now 53 years old. And a lot of the kind of rise in car ownership and car use now is coming from basically the sort of baby boomer generation who grew up with cars, replacing an older generation who were sort of less likely to have ever learned to drive in the first place. So if we're talking over a long enough time horizon, then maybe we reach what bought executives called peak car but i don't think that's coming yet the more short-term thing is going to be more cars on the roads more people trying to drive them i think it's only going to become carmageddon practically it's going to be more and more politically tense as time goes on and some cities will probably succeed in banishing the car entirely or almost entirely and others will have to deal with growing congestion and arguments over road building and everything else and it'll be really interesting to see which change and which don't thanks for your time daniel thank you so much for having me In factories, people work together at machines to make many of the products that help us live better and easier. Ah, going to work. First, there was the factory line. Then, it was the era of the dreaded cubicle farm. With the turn of the millennium came the rise of open-plan offices. 
They were supposed to be more egalitarian, but employees hated them, listening to all those phone calls, smelling all those lunches. Now, the pandemic has created an opportunity for yet another rethink of office space. The office used to be a place where everyone had to go in, there was no choice. It had to be fit for everyone to do work of all kinds. Andrew Palmer writes Bartleby, our column on the world of work. Now it has to be a place that makes the commute worthwhile. So how to do that? How are bosses thinking about making the commute worthwhile? Bosses are thinking about it more in terms of socializing, giving people space to uh, work on projects and collaborate, and generally building a, a sense of esprit de corps, providing an experience, if you like, uh, in a way that they didn't have to think about pre-pandemic. One of the levers that bosses are thinking of pulling is the excellent one of alcohol. And there seems to be a tremendous amount of demand for bars to be going into offices as they're being retrofitted. Okay, so that's going to lure us into the office, but, but what will things look like once we get back there? Offices will have less space assigned to desks, and they'll have more shared areas, which designers like to call neighborhoods, which teams sort of regard as their home base, where people hang out, they'll grab a space that's available. What the pandemic has done is, is kind of made ties within teams stronger. Everyone is cooperating with a smaller, tighter group uh, much more easily. The issue is, how do you meet people or interact with people who you don't encounter normally on Zoom calls? So people are thinking about using the space in offices slightly differently for that. You might use um, your team space to showcase the work that you're doing. So more space for for teams, for collaborating, more booze flowing, um, and no one's really sort of assigned to desks. I mean, the desks have to kind of get out of the way. Well, two things. Firstly, they shouldn't be assigned to an individual because you don't quite know who's coming in at any one point. And secondly, they have to be more flexible. So desks that are not as tethered as they used to be. I mean, most most of us work in offices where there, you know, there are cables and plugs and that sort of anchors the desk. Um, you wouldn't want to try to move it. The future will have desks which are on wheels. And that goes for rooms as well, too. All of these considerations seem to hinge on the idea that uh, hybrid working, as we currently understand it, will, will just carry on. What if offices become so great, everybody piles back into them? That doesn't seem very likely as an outcome. All the evidence suggests that most workers want some kind of hybrid existence in the future. Uh, there are some firms which are kind of insisting on five days a week. It doesn't feel like that's a great talent management strategy at this point. Uh, so the assumption is that we're going to have you know, some people in, some people out. There'll be some bunching in core hours during the day when the office might be uh, that much busier. But in general, there is going to be a mix of virtual and in-person. Does that make for a better office than the before times? I think it depends a little bit on how comfortable you are with being watched and how much you like alcohol. Those seem to be two elements of the office of the future. A more surveilled kind of environment is probably the one that we're heading for. Think cameras, think microphones, uh, sensors that can work out if you're raising a hand to speak, microphones that point to you if you've begun an intervention. So, you know, if you like to socialise, and you're happy to give off lots of data as you do so, no problem at all. If you worry about those things or don't like drinking that much, it may not be for you. I look forward to um, socializing and, and perhaps drinking with you in the office soon, Andrew. Uh, as do I. Thanks very much for joining us, Andrew. Thank you for having me, Jason.
that's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The links to subscribe and to take our survey are in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit Moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity.